It's that time of year when, for good reason, the Christian world is thinking about the first advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation, the God-man, the miracle of miracles, that one person, two natures, truly God, truly man. And it, it is, as I said, for good reason that most of the Christian world is, is thinking about those things and even much of the pagan world is forced to have that thought at least dark through their minds. But as the Lord would have it, He's brought us to a place in John's Gospel where we're thinking not so much of Jesus coming into the world, but of Him leaving. And it's actually a beautiful first Advent theme that we often overlook. But the significance of Jesus coming is is very obvious, but the significance of Him leaving is sometimes overlooked, and it's that theme that dominates our sermon text today in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. I invite you to come there with me, and as you're preparing to hear it read, I want to help you one step further. We think in this season of the gift of the Lord Jesus, again, I say rightfully so, but how often do believers think of an equal gift, a tantamount, that means tied for first, at the highest possible pinnacle of God's blessings to us, how often do we think of another gift of equal value, tantamount, parallel significance, importance, dignity, majesty, glory, power, that is the gift of God, not the Son, but the Holy Spirit. That's the focus of today's text. We could say it this way, to put the whole Bible and its glorious message into a really tight package. This doesn't say everything, but it does say, I believe, the heart of among the most significant things of Scripture. That is, Christ Jesus came into the world for you. The Bible's clear about that. Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul writes in Timothy. God loved the world such that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ came into the world for you. But today's text wants you to hear another truth. You came into the world for Him. That's why you're here. You're here for Him. He came for you, but equally as significant as you exist, He doesn't exist for you. That's not parallel. You exist for Him. That's all over the Bible. Let me just refresh or maybe renew your minds with a passage you haven't thought about. It's not our sermon text, but it'll lead us right into reading it. For by Him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. You came into the world for Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why you have breath in your lungs today. And with that in view, I invite you to John chapter 16. We'll pick up our reading in verse 1. We'll focus our attention especially on the middle of verse 4 down to verse 15. But just to set the context for us, let your eyes fall on John 16 verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the voice of the God who made you. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And here's where our focus especially picks up today, in the middle of verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage 
that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's pray together once again. Asking for God's help. We'll give you just a moment to do that. Asking the Lord to help you to speak to you. Father, I ask that for me, through my voice on behalf of us all, that you would help us, that you would speak to us. You said that's not only what you do, that's who the Spirit is. He is our power. He is the Spirit of truth. He will lead us into all the truth. What he hears, he will speak. He will make known what is to come. He will glorify Jesus. And so we ask that you would make us receptive to who he is and to his glorious ministry among us now through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't need special powers of interpretation to realize that chapter 16 is one of the most sober parts of John's gospel. Even if you've never read the first 15 chapters, just hearing the opening few verses of John 16, you've got to realize it's a very sober part of Scripture. Jesus is giving to his disciples an honest assessment of how they're going to be treated when he departs from the world. For those who may not be aware, this is the last night of our earthly life, of the of our Lord's earthly life. He'll be crucified the next morning. Jesus wants his followers to know, as verses 1 to 4 make so plain, that they will be made religious outcasts. That's in verse 2. They're going to be excommunicated. They will be kicked out of the synagogues. Verse 2. Not only are they going to be religious outcasts for their fidelity to Jesus, for their walk with Christ, for their testimony concerning Christ, not only will they be religious outcasts, verse 2 makes very plain, that they will be martyrs and their killers will be religious zealots. How spiritually deceived does somebody have to be to believe deep down in their bones that they're bringing glory to God by killing people who love and follow Jesus? Jesus said in verse 2, that's why they will do it. They will think that they're offering service to God we're talking about a dimension of spiritual deception and darkness. Like was just prayed, Pastor Bakari last week in Nigeria, who was martyred for his faith, who preached Christ to his captors. As Jim shared last week in the sermon on the first four verses in the last part of chapter 15, Tradition tells us that most of the men, 10 out of the 11, who heard Jesus say these sentences, died a brutal death for their fidelity to Christ. Some of them crucified upside down. Others horrifically maimed. The Apostle Paul, who wasn't part of this group, tradition tells us, was beheaded, had his head locked off on a chopping block in Rome because of their testimony to Jesus. 
the only one of the eleven, tradition tells us, that wasn't martyred, and we have good reason to think that it's accurate tradition, was the Apostle John, who lived to old age, perhaps dying of it instead of martyrdom. They will think they're offering service to God when they kill you. Who wants to sign up to be a follower of that Savior? In this week's passage, Jesus begins to tell these eleven why he had not yet told them all this sobering news. It's not that they, he never said anything about it or they had no idea about it, but he gives them the reason that he hasn't been so explicit until the night before he died, namely because he was with them. Verse 5, up until now, we can discern that Jesus has been absorbing all the fiery darts of the enemy that were aimed not only at him, but also at his followers. The enemy's warfare against the people who know, love, and follow Jesus was being intercepted by Christ himself. He was taking their darts in their place. But in verse 5, Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent him. From the middle of verse 4, down to verse 15, there's three big things that are unfolded. In verses 4 to 6, the disciples are really sad. It's an unbounded sorrow. It's an illegitimate sadness. It's a legitimate feeling. They are filled with sorrow. As Jesus talks to them, their countenance falls. He's watching their faces droop into sadness. The more he talks, the more sad they become. They're actually sad because of what he's saying. But it's an illegitimate sadness. That's verses 4 to 6. Then in verses 7 to 11, Jesus begins to speak to them for the fourth time in John's Gospel about the precious and omnipotent, all-powerful person of the Holy Spirit. And for the fourth time in John's Gospel, in verses 7 to 11, Jesus explains how the Spirit will exercise a ministry to the whole world. He will do His work of conviction. And then finally, in verses 12 to 15, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The fifth and final time, Jesus speaks of the Spirit's ministry in John's Gospel. It's His ministry to the disciples and to the followers of Christ. Well, that's our outline. We'll take them just in that order, verses 4 to 6. The disciples' wrong perspective of the gospel leads them to experience the wrong emotions. Now, I want to say right at the beginning, wrong emotions are not always the result of wrong perceptions of the gospel. But in this case, it certainly was. And these disciples needed to preach to themselves and not listen to themselves. It's in verses 4b down to 6, which reads in the middle of verse 4, These things I did not say to you in the beginning, because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where you you are going. You see this in verse 6? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's what I was talking about a moment ago. When Jesus is speaking, he's watching, watching their countenance drop. The more he talks, the more sad they become. Do you all understand? Do I understand? That Jesus is okay to say things to you that make you sad? He's not opposed to hurting your feelings. Our feelings need to accord with the truth. And what I'm saying is they had a wrong understanding of the gospel therefore they had the wrong emotional response to the words of Jesus it was the perspective on the gospel that was wrong not the words of Christ that were wrong remember this is the night as I mentioned before Jesus was crucified he is being abundantly clear that he is leaving the world and going to the father who sent him he says it explicitly like that He says in verse 5, and none of you asks me where I'm going. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. 
Nobody saying where. Well, this has been a challenging statement. I don't want to go too much into the nuance and details of who says this and who says that and why it's kind of especially challenging. But you do need to know a little bit of why this is a challenging statement. None of you asks me, verse 5, where are you going? The reason that's challenging is because Peter asks and because Thomas asks. Peter asked explicitly, John 13, 36, just a few chapters earlier, Lord, where are you going? John 14, Jesus is speaking about his departure back to the Father. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And then we get the familiar I am statement. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Peter and Thomas had asked. How can Jesus say, None of you asks, where are you going? Well, to solve that conundrum, church history has done some gymnastics. Part of the gymnastics has been to reorder the chapters of John's Gospel. They say he's a good theologian, he's just a bad historian. He got his chronology wrong, so people have literally lifted chapters of John, not erased them, but moved them. So that this statement precedes Peter and Thomas asking. Is that how we handle it? Well, some in church history have done that, not most. I think there's a better way, and most have taken it this way. What Jesus means is not you've never asked the question explicitly. What Jesus means is you've never asked the question for the right reason. You've been totally self-absorbed in your own loss. Now look, we can give the disciples a bad rap, right? It's easy, hindsight's 2020, to look at the disciples and say, how do you not get it? You know why sorrow's filling their heart? They believed that when the first advent happened, Christ came. And they had an increasing awareness and understanding of who he is and why he came. That he was about to inaugurate the eternal kingdom. They didn't have the depth perception at this time, the night before he dies, to see that he had to depart and then return. They didn't see the two advents, they smushed them together, and so they're totally sad. But D.A. Carson says they have been too self-absorbed in their own loss. That's what Jesus means, I believe, by you don't ask, where are you going? At this time, they do not understand what's about to happen to their Lord, their Master. Later they will. Praise God that by the Holy Spirit, they're later inspired and several of them write down books of the New Testament with a crystal clear understanding of what Jesus was talking about on that night. But here all they have is sorrow. You see it in verse 6? It's not only in verse 6 that they're sad. That's not what verse 6 is saying. It's not only that they're getting more and more sad as Jesus talks. It's that they're only experiencing sorrow. That's the only emotion they have, and I can get that out of the word filled. Sorrow has filled your heart. That word is literally completely full to overflowing. All they can see in what Jesus is saying is what it's going to cost them. That's why I say they're self-absorbed. This word for sorrow repeats later in this same chapter. It'll be Lord willing in next week's sermon text, verses 20 and 22. The world will rejoice, you will grieve, your grief will be turned to joy. Like a woman in childbirth who after the baby is born, verse 21, doesn't remember the grief and anguish because the joy of the child that's been born, verse 22. Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus understood that they didn't get it. And that their sorrow was really rooted in a misunderstanding of 
the glorious gospel accomplishments and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that were coming literally over the next 72 hours. So Jesus is speaking in verses 4 to 6. And I want you to see it as much as you hear it. As he talks, he watches the countenance of his followers drop. He knows that his words are true. And he knows that his words should not have a corresponding effect of sorrow, but rather joy. So in verses 7 to 15, he starts to explain to them why these are words of gladness and not grief. He had already said similarly in John 14, you heard that I say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, what did Jesus say? You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Not you would be sad because I'm telling you I'm leaving. You would be glad because I'm telling you I'm leaving. Why is that the case? Well, let's look at Jesus' two statements, the fourth and the fifth, the final statements from Jesus on the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. The first is in verses 7 to 11, and the second is in verses 12 to 15. Let's look at each of those one at a time. Jesus has something wonderful to teach his followers about how they will continue to have power to endure hardship, like when people kill you thinking they're rendering service to God, how they will have power to endure hardship and his presence to advance the gospel in the midst of a hostile world, even after he's gone. So in verses 7 to 11, what we find is the Holy Spirit will convict the world when he comes. And in verses 12 to 15, he will glorify Christ. Verses 7 to 11. The Spirit will convict the world. Not only are the disciples, not only ought the disciples not be filled with grief, they should actually see Jesus' departure as something that is for their good. So if you get to vote, yes or no, if you're one of the eleven on Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' earthly life, and if the vote carries, it happens. Vote yes, Jesus stay with us and never leave. Vote no, Jesus leave us and it gets better. Which do you vote for if you're one of the eleven? Jesus says, verse 7, unequivocally, it's to your advantage that I leave. The vote should have been unanimous if there were one. Because all 11 should have seen it as to their good. The reason Jesus' departure is only advantage, not partially, only. It is better for you. Jesus is trying to communicate to them that I go away. The reason that it is only advantage is not because it's wonderful not to have Jesus with you in the flesh. That's not why it's good. But because of what it signifies in redemptive history. This is a marker of God's redemptive plan being carried out in this present evil age when he sends the Spirit, it signifies that God is beginning the final epic, if you will, in wrapping up human history and fulfilling his plan to give his Son of God to his glory, to all eternity, and to make his enemies a footstool of the feet of his Son. Jesus says, this should make you glad. God is doing what in his eternal counsels he has planned to do. And I am speaking to you of that even now before I go and carry out the gospel labor. So Jesus is hearkening back when he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. He's hearkening back to massive Old Testament promises that concern the age of the Spirit. When a day would come when the kingdom of God would begin to erupt in the whole world, where the knowledge of the glory of God begins to cover the earth like the water covers the sea, Habakkuk. When Jesus is speaking of the Spirit coming as an advantage to His people, He's thinking of Spirit-sending promises in the Old Testament like Isaiah 11, or Isaiah 32, or Isaiah 42, 
or Isaiah 44, or Ezekiel 11, or Ezekiel 36, or Ezekiel 37, or Joel chapter 2, when Peter, who is filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, gets up to preach and he quotes Joel 2 from memory and says, this is that. When Jesus is speaking of the Spirit coming as an advantage, he's thinking of the Old Covenant text that speak of the New Covenant promises. When the church is baptized with God Himself, everyone made a priest unto God, filled with the Spirit, and the church is unleashed with gospel advancing power all across the globe. So, in John 16, Jesus knows something that the 11 don't know. They should know it. Jesus knows that about 50 days from now, Pentecost, the age of the Spirit would be ushered in. And the clock would start at the resurrection of Jesus early on Sunday morning. The clock would start counting down on the last days. When Jesus ascends to heaven 40 days after his resurrection, when he's enthroned on high, as our catechism said earlier today, the clock is irreversibly set in motion and it is to our advantage that Jesus go away so that God's redemptive historical purposes are carried out in the world just as he had planned from long ago. And when we get a God-centered vision of what God is doing in his world for his glory through his people, you shouldn't be sad about that. You should be amazed that he's called you to be part of it. It shows when Jesus ascends, that God is keeping his promises to bring all of human history to its intended conclusion with Christ's people in his presence and all of God's enemies beneath his feet as his footstool. In the previous promise statements about the Holy Spirit, the age of the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit in John's Gospel, it follows every time the resurrection and return of Jesus to glory. And all those promise statements about the Spirit coming could be summarized previously under two, real, two categories. The Spirit will be your helper, John 14. That's repeated here in 16. And He'll be your advocate, John 15. He will help you and He will represent you. He will help you. He will intercede for you. He will advocate for you. But Leon Morris points out very helpfully in his commentary on John 16, there's an additional focus here. Not only helper, not only advocate, but verse 7 to 11, prosecutor. Prosecutor. He will, look at that word, convict. You see that in verse 8? He will convict sinful people that they are wrong. They're wrong. This word convict is translated by the NIV. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. By the King James, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The NAS, as I mentioned, he will convict the world. When Leon Moore said he's a prosecutor, what he means is the range of meaning of this word is that the Holy Spirit is conducting a courtroom proceeding. He's doing three things. He's bringing a charge. The charge is sin. You are guilty. The charge is being brought by the Holy Spirit of sin before the judge. The judge has a standard. For him to sit on the bench, he has to uphold the standard. The standard is number two, and the Holy Spirit is appealing to this. The world is guilty. You are righteous. All of their so-called righteousness is actually what incriminates them before you. 
All the good they've ever done is reason that you should send them to hell forever. And all the bad they've ever done only compounds their guilt before you. You're righteous. They're guilty. He will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of righteousness. And he will convince the world of judgment. The just, appropriate verdict in light of God's charge, you are a sinner, and God's standard, He is righteous, you are not, is that you are guilty and therefore worthy of just condemnation. So verses 9 to 11 expound on that. And each of those threefold ministries of the Spirit to the world as prosecutor get a little bit of expansion. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, why? Verse 9. Because they do not believe in me. So here we have a clear answer to the charge. The Spirit will levy against the world. Most of the world is so inebriated, so drunk. They have no idea this charge hangs over their head. Everywhere they go, everything they do, waking and sleeping, dark and light, shadows and brightness, company and isolation. There's a placard, like as Jesus was crucified, a placard hung over his head. There's a placard over the head of every lost person that God sees all the time. And the sign reads, you do not believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to grab everybody by the collar. He's going to pull them close. He's going to turn them around. And he will make them read the sign. This is the sin of all sins. This is the unpardonable sin. This is the crime of rejecting God's only offer of grace to the guilty. And on the flip side, who will not endure this inescapable charge from God the Holy Spirit? Obviously, the answer is the positive side of the coin. Those who believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe? John's already given us a word. He gave it to us in the prologue. He's expanded on it all the way to chapter 16. Our whole sermon series in John's Gospel is believe and live because the end of John's Gospel says these things have been, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He gave us a word in the first chapter. It's the key verse of the whole prologue. Everything follows into verse 12 in the prologue. As many as receive Him, to them, he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What does believe mean? It means receive all that God is for you in Christ. It means embrace Jesus. It means cling to Christ. It means throw yourself off a 10,000 foot cliff into the arms of Jesus and say, catch me. That's faith. And as many as believe, don't get this placard over their head. He will convince and convict the world of sin. That's the work of the paraclete, the helper. But he will also convict the world of righteousness. And verse 10 expands on that. Verse 8 just says the three. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Verse 10 tells us what Jesus means by righteousness. Concerning righteousness, here it is. You see it in verse 10? Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So the first prosecutorial work of the Spirit's conviction is to charge you with sin. You don't believe in Jesus. You have no hope. The second is to convince the world of God's standard. Righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Righteousness. You see, when Jesus ascended on high, it's God's loudest possible trumpet blast that he is the righteous redeemer. It is the loudest megaphone God could possibly find in the universe to trumpet to everyone near and far 
that he accepted the sacrifice of this one when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power, all authority and dominion, every name that is named, when he gave Jesus the name above all names, when he put Jesus in parallel dignity to himself, seated at the right hand, equal, co-equal, co-majestic, all the dignity, all the regal splendor and majesty of God himself, he's saying to the universe, he's righteous. You have to be that righteous to come into my presence. If you're not that righteous, you have no hope. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. How righteous do I have to be, Jesus? You must be as perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you know what you need? You definitely need your sin gone. That's conviction work number one. But you need an alien righteousness. You need an imputed righteousness. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of you, credited to your account, that you cannot accumulate on your own. The Bible is so crystal clear that only God is righteous. John 17, next chapter, Jesus prays, Oh, righteous Father. In the Old Testament, we're told time and again that God judges by one standard and one only. His righteous character. Your judgments are true, the psalmist said. They are righteous altogether. When the Holy Spirit convinces the world of righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father, the Holy Spirit will one day very soon and much to the surprise and dread of almost all of humanity, he will convince the whole world that when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, God vindicated his own righteousness. And here's the best part of the good news of the gospel. Don't get tired of hearing this. The best part of the good news of the gospel is that God does not have to violate His character to become your friend. That's the best part of the good news. He doesn't need you or me. And when He saves us, He's both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Because He credits to us the righteousness of Christ. Before we go to the final look at the paraclete in verses 12 to 15, I want you to see how this works. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The way to the sin is death. That was providentially spoken and prayed by our pastor opening the service. The wages of sin is death. Guess who never sinned? Only one person. His name is Jesus. But he died. But I thought the wages of sin is death. It is. He had no sin and he died. Do you want to know how you can know he had no sin though he died? God raised him from the dead. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the hope of Christianity. And that righteous one is now our advocate. John writes in his first epistle, not here in the gospel, but that latter book and toward the end of the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So because Jesus has gone to the Father, because he has been vindicated as perfectly righteous, because he's been proven, as the book of Acts says, the standard by which God will judge all men. God has furnished proof to the whole world that he's going to judge everybody, and the proof is a righteous man, Jesus, who raised from the dead. Therefore, to reject him is to reject the only possible provision to be counted righteous in God's sight. So the Holy Spirit's going to convince the world of sin and of righteousness. And then you see the third one in verse 11 is judgment. We've touched on it already. Acts 17, 31. 
God has fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. This is the evidence that He was in fact sinless. Death couldn't hold Him. It was impossible, the apostles say, for Him to be held by death's power because of his own indestructible life. He is immortal. Death has no hold on him. He is sinless. Therefore, it was of necessity that he be raised from the dead and be proven righteous, vindicated by being exalted to the Father's right hand where he now sits and will soon dismount that same throne and come to judge the whole world in righteousness. Our culture, our, our culture needs to hear this passage so badly. Let me put it to you this way. Wouldn't it be great? I, I wonder if you think this. I don't know if you agree with me. Wouldn't it be great if every sin, every act of unrighteousness was perfectly judged by God all the time, immediately? Well, yeah, that would be great. As long as it's other people's sin. Other people's unrighteousness, right? Not, not our own. The reason I say our culture needs this passage so bad is because unless your head's in sand, evil is abundantly seen to be around us everywhere, right? It's not hard to see. Everybody, simultaneously, in the midst of an evil and perverse generation, seems to be playing both judge and jury over our neighbor. We excuse our own sin and we execute justice on everybody around us. Our culture is in a landslide of immorality. Teenagers and adults are drowning in pornography and sensuality. All manner of immorality. We live in a day when there's a lot of confusion and animosity over bigotry and ethnocentricity, racism. The sins of respectability, like materialism, which is in itself a religion, just like all the other isms. Materialism is at an all-time high in the richest nation in the world. Other respectable sins, like cloaking our sins of the tongue to our fellow believers, with sanctified terminology when really all we're doing is gossiping and slandering. Many have been blessed so they seem to presume with the spiritual gift of criticism. We just brush it off like it's not a big deal. Carnality and deception. Injustices galore. It seems that our times and our culture are just eroding into more and more godlessness by the day. I'm sure before the day's over, there'll be another 12-hour news cycle of something horrific that's gone wrong in our day and in our land. But worse of all, there's a new shibboleth among our contemporaries. There's a new statement. There's a new, there's a new religious passage through which we go in our day. And that passage is not only is our world in an imploding cycle of amplified evil, it is doing so without shame. Our nation no longer blushes at exposés of evil. Instead, we celebrate them. Moral degradation is on the increase. Flaunting one's depravity has become admirable behavior. Social media often serves as a temple into which religious devotees go to hold narcissistic worship services to the Almighty God Himself. Sin and sinners are going public with their evils and simultaneously, where's God? It's all going unpunished. Where is He? Why doesn't He do something about it? I mean, can't God see that things are not so pure and holy down here on this earth that He made and upon the soil which His Son's feet trod upon? Today's passage unmistakably declares through the lips of the Lord Jesus that the standard of justice in God's courtroom is His own righteousness and the prosecuting attorney who will levy the charges against every single person ever born chronologically, geographically, 
is the Holy Spirit. No one and no sin, secret or public, will ever escape the eyes of El Roe, the God who sees. That's why Christians are commanded. This is not suggested. This is commanded. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. You want to know how you can live without despair in the midst of an evil world where people may have a totally different political construct than you? You want to know how to live in an evil world without despair where people may have totally different measures of what is good and bad than you or holy and evil than you. You don't know how you can live without despair in the midst of an evil world where people get away with evil every day and all day long and oftentimes against us. I mind you, verse 2, they kill you because they think they're rendering service to God. Here's how. Hope in the one who will perfectly execute justice in the final analysis. In the last book of the Bible, the person who wrote this chapter, John, wrote these words. All evil, Revelation 19 and 20, will be judged by God in perfect righteousness. This is my summary, not a quote. And all evildoers will be punished and everything will eventually be set right in God's, according to God's rightful glory and restored in the world with His people in underneath bliss. How, how do we know He's going to do that. Verse 11 tells us he's going to judge the most evil person of all. He's definitely going to judge anybody less evil. He's already taken Satan by the collar, put a chain around his neck, and made him his leash boy. He's put Satan in check. The ruler of this world has been judged. And when Jesus got up from the dead, the least happy person was Satan. And everyone who doesn't bow the knee to Jesus will suffer the same thing. That leads us to the final part. I promise you it's brief. It's the best, but it needs to be done, not just heard. It needs to be received, believed, and walked in, not just thought about. So let me give you a few thoughts, and may the Lord help us to walk in it. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. This is the final paraclete statement, verses 12 to 15. I know some of you wish I would become a lot more like Christ, according to verse 12. <laughs> I have many more things to say to you, but you can't outbear them now. <laughs> Maybe the Lord will make me more like Jesus uh, sooner rather than later. This portion of scripture is not answering the metaphysical question about the presence of God. Can Jesus and the Holy Spirit be on the earth at the same time? That's not the question that this passage is answering. You may want to impose that question into this passage, but you're not going to get the answer from it. Can the Son and the Spirit co-dwell upon the earth? Yes, that's always been the case. Because God is God, He is everywhere all the time. That, by definition, is true always of God. There's never a time that the Spirit wasn't on earth. So when Jesus says the Spirit can't come unless I depart, he doesn't mean omnipresence is somehow vacated from the Son or the Spirit at any point ever, for to do so would cease to be God. So Jesus is not teaching here that when the Spirit comes, he means that he had never been. What he means is, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the inauguration of the last days, the church age, the spirit age. And while many may ignore him, none will escape him. But Jesus' focus here is not on the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but on the Jesus-glorifying work of the Holy Spirit. Not among the lost world, but among his people, the bride. The Spirit's ministry in these verses is threefold to guide you in all the truth, verse 13, to disclose what is to come, verse 13, and to glorify Christ, verses 14 and 15. 
All of these are certainly applicable to all Christians in all places and all times. But Jesus is speaking to a particular group of followers at a particular time in redemptive history. And he means these truths to the eleven in a unique way. When he says in verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth, he's literally talking to the you in front of him. The disciples. He's going to guide you into all the truth. He's going to disclose to you what is to come. He's going to glorify me. He's going to take from what belongs to me. The Father's given me everything, and he's going to give it back to you. Remember, he's saying this the night before he's crucified to his 11 closest friends. And they needed to know that after he was gone, they would have his presence in the person of God the Holy Spirit who would do for them what they most desperately needed. Be guided in the truth. Show me what's coming and help me to glorify Christ. What did he mean by each of these? To be guided into all truth is the truth concerning what Jesus would soon accomplish over the next few short hours. The truth of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his messianic accomplishments, his gospel labors, that he won redemption, that he put death to death on Friday, and that he redeemed all God's people on Sunday, that he paid for us. In full, that there's no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will guide you into all that truth. And you then will be able to guide others into that same saving truth in Christ. That's what I believe disclosing what is to come means. It doesn't mean that you get special revelations from the Holy Spirit if you become a Christian. It doesn't mean that you get new revelations from God, the Holy Spirit, if you just pray longer or pray harder. It doesn't mean that you can... Use the age-old and oft-abused phraseology like God told me. That's not what disclose what is to come means. J.I. Packer put it well, citing what has been attributed as a quote to John Owen, who knows if it's his or not. But Owen, uh, J.I. Packer put it this way. If your private revelations, God told me, agree with Scripture, they're needless. If they disagree with Scripture, they're false. Do you get that? If God's just telling you something the Bible already says, there's no reason for you to have it. If God's telling you something contrary to what the Bible says, it's a lie. So disclose what is to come, the Clarkson says, means that they would understand, which they don't on Thursday night. But fast forward 20 and 30 years when they start writing epistles. Fast forward 50 days when they start preaching in Jerusalem like men with their hair on fire saying, we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. Go look at the charisma, the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. Literally, go look at it. Go look at every sermon in the book of Acts and see what they talk about in every single sermon. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When these men start to understand what is to come, the Spirit teaching them, oh, the resurrection of Jesus is the way to redeeming all the people for whom he died. Carson said, to be disclosed what is to come means that the consequences of the person, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus start to make sense. And finally, he glorifies Christ. We end here because this is not only where the passage ends, but this is the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 14 and 15. Everything the Father has is given to the Son. The Son only glorified the Father in His time on earth. He says repeatedly, I do only what glorifies the Father. He would say to Himself, He never even speaks unless it's a word the Father gave Him to speak. He did everything for the glory of the Father, and the Father has given to Him everything, and the Spirit therefore takes from what belongs to Christ, and He lifts Him up high. Friends, we need a new wave of revival of true Christianity. What I mean by that is a unabashed, unashamed Christ glorification deep in our souls. That we would pray that the Holy Spirit would do in us what Jesus said His vocation is. His job. Why He has been sent is to elevate the Lord Jesus. And again, go look at the lives of the 11 men. I counted this week 114 times in the epistle 
to the Ephesians. Paul wasn't in this conversation, but became one of the apostles of time born. 114 times in six chapters, he explicitly, or by pronoun, implicitly, refers to Jesus. Paul would say in places like Philippians 2, the Father's not jealous when you focus on the Son. He's not jealous that you're worshiping Jesus and not Him. In fact, He gave Him the name above every name so that everybody would bow before Him and declare that He is Lord. To this end, it is to the glory of God the Father. The more you exalt the Son, the more the Father is honored. He's not jealous. He's glorified. Who gives you the power to do that? The Holy Spirit. How do you know the Spirit's at work in your life? You become like John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. And if that's not the tenor, the temperament, the baseline conviction of your soul, to what degree is the Spirit at work in you? Because his whole vocation is Hebrews 12 too, to take your eyes off yourself, to take your eyes off this world, and to fix your eyes, to rivet your eyes upon Jesus Christ. The lives of the apostles and the writing of the entire apostolic witness, the whole New Testament shows that the exaltation of Jesus is the chief means of glorifying God. Do you want to bring God glory in your life? If you're a Christian, you do. That's why we say it around here. I care less about the jargon and the phraseology. But we say it around here because we believe it's radically biblical. We exist to glorify God. Guess who else says that? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Hindus. Yeah, let's all glorify God. But, so we therefore say it this way. We exist to glorify God. How? By treasuring His Son. That's how we do it. It's by Him being lifted up. Because the only way that's going to happen is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Father is pleased to hand everything to the Son. Verse 15. So the Spirit takes from Him and exalts Jesus. He did that to the eleven. He does that now in the lives of all His people the testimony that born concerning Christ. So reorient your view of your whole life from verses 5 to 15. Really the end of verse 4. And this is what I mean. By verse 15, there's no indication of them being sad. They may not have fully gotten it. But it was prayed this morning providentially One of the men who heard this, Peter, says 30 years later, though you do not see him. Why? Because he went back to the Father. You love him. And now you're really sad that he's gone. No, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Reorient your life. From being self-absorbed to being gospel-focused. From having sorrow from what you lose to joy for what God is doing, propagating to the end of the ages the truth of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and His soon coming return, and He will judge all men. Why? Why is all this happening? All these things happened to them in the Old Testament, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, it was God's clock starting on the end of the ages. And until Jesus comes again, it's the Spirit age. It's to our advantage that Jesus has gone away and inaugurated His kingdom. That kingdom will soon be consummated. Oh, that the world would wake up from their drunken stupor. That kingdom will soon be consummated. And the Spirit is using one means to sober everybody up. Anybody who's going to wake up is going to wake up because of the same means, namely the testimony of Jesus through His church as He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I see two things to do. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Depend. You know how Paul said it? We have the sentence of death in ourselves. We thought we were about to die. 
And the reason God let it happen is so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Depend on the Holy Spirit. This divine resource, this precious gift of Jesus, sent from the Father to Christian disciples in the middle of a hostile world so that we could cope with all the anxiety and hardship and challenges that we face and also trust God to empower us to together advance the gospel in the midst of a pagan and perverse generation. So depend on the Spirit. And the last thing is so abundantly obvious. Get saved. Every sin is going to be found out. You can't escape God's notice and judgment. You have to turn to Jesus, entrust yourself to Him, believing that He died for your sin and rose again as evidence that God will save you if you will put all your hope in Him. Let's pray together.